Welcome to Menu Stories, a podcast where we get to know the stories about the people and restaurants behind the food we love, starting with San Francisco. I'm your host, Rebecca Goberstein. Today, we meet Dario Barbone and Renato Sardo of Baya Pasta, an artisanal pasta production company based in Oakland. The two met in San Francisco and have grown their business in the Bay Area and named their company as an homage to their business's roots. The word Baya means bay in Italian. Barbone and Sardo are both from the Piemonte region of Italy, the same region where one of the guests on our last episode, Umberto Gibin of Perbacco and Volta, is also from. Like Gibin, Barbone and Sardo grew up in Italy surrounded by the ultimate farm-to-table lifestyle. Sardo took that passion to his entire career spent as an advocate for the slow food movement, as did Barbone, who has a PhD in molecular medicine and sees the nutritional importance of organically and locally sourced ingredients. Uh, I believe U.S., but kind of worldwide, food is being removed from culture. So you see a lot of people here not really connected to a specific culture and actually a specific relationship with food, eating at the table, cooking for people visiting your farmer's market, getting what's in season, supporting your local farmer. Seeing how much people is disconnected, even with cooking a, a plate of pasta, is uh, surprised. Yeah. Uh, it's surprising. Let's have a listen. So we are here today in Oakland at Baya Pasta with Dario Barbone. Hi there. <laughs> we, uh, we also wanted to meet Renato Sardo, but he is ill oh, today, unfortunately. He's a little bit sick, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but we are happy to have you, Dario. Yeah, thank you. In your own words, can you describe what Baya Pasta is? So Baya Pasta was born uh, to celebrate American wheat. And as Italians, the best way to do it for us was through pasta. Uh, back in 2009, 2010, when the ideas were floating around to, um, uh, for Renato and I to stop preaching good food and um, start making good food, um, I think Renato was having a conversation at the Renaissance Forge in, in San Francisco where Angelo Garo lives, where Biapasta was actually born eventually. Um, with people like Michael Pollan and in general, you know, have a philosophy of restoration of certain foods that um, are kind of forgotten in the artisanal world. And back in the days, we could see a huge renaissance of bread and other product, wheat products, but pasta for some reason was not being uh, considered yet. And so we said we should make pasta. Actually, Renato said we should make pasta. So he poked me for a year and I didn't bite. <laughs> and then he threw the final hook in 2010 with a small business plan that was well written. And um, yeah, I did bite that hook. And here we are almost you know, five years later, because beginning of 2006 right now, 2016 right now. And um, here we are. So it, it was kind of a steep learning curve for us. So um, one of the things that Renato learned, and then I double-checked on the website of the Italian Ministry of Agriculture, is that actually 70%, 70 to 75, actually, percent of the grains that are used in Italy to make pasta are from Canada and U.S. And now from Eastern Europe as well, but the bulk of the imp import is from, uh, from, uh, from the Americas. And we thought it was counterintuitive that wheat should go overseas, being manufactured and brought back. We could learn that know-how and bring it back and just make pasta here, adding another puzzle, a piece of the puzzle in the wheat um, window uh, of artisanal foods. 
And so Renato went to Italy and learned from uh, many pasta makers our, I would say, Jedi. You know, our Obi-Wan Kenobi is Mr. Mancini, um, who's a phenomenal pasta maker. And Renato went there. He pretty much gave us everything we need to know to make pasta. And long story short, we bought, uh, we started making Baya Pasta at, as I said, at the Renaissance Forge, where Omnivore Salt is, uh, is, is, is made right now. And um, yeah, 20 pounds. That was the first batch of, of Baya Pasta, cut by hand, super small batch, transported in a Prius on the Bay Bridge back to Oakland and dried, by, you know, just by ventilation and controlling as best as we could. Uh, the humidity, and it was a revelation. I mean, I we didn't even expect that we could make such good pasta. So back in the day, 2010, it was the period of um, underground farmer's market, you know, the Forge SF, the taste market, new taste marketplace on Potrero, and I was already doing one of them because I'm a DIY guy. I was making a lot of stuff at home, um, pancetta and cheese and whatever. Wow. And uh, we basically added Baya Pasta to the roster of homemade products. And literally, it sold out in 20, 20 minutes. One a minute. Boom, 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 boom. Out. Oh, wow. So we're shocked. Like, people want this. So we look for another machine, a little bit bigger. And our friend Adam had, um, had a larger pasta machine with an automatic cutter. And we made 60 pounds. We filled up the Prius completely <laughs> this time. Uh, the, we couldn't fit and a noodle anymore and we Not dried it we dried it and we brought it to the next market and it sold pretty much in an hour an hour and a half so again nice attention to something that no one was doing and they were the customers were appreciating the passion that we were putting into it it's almost a pound a minute almost a pound a minute yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean I, I i won't tell you all the problems that we had making that pasta because it was you know we learned it was breaking and then but it was fantastic at the very end it was a great bite Actually, the first buyer by a pasta was an editor at chow.com. So we had instant coverage from day wow. one. Yeah. yeah. And so basically, we decided to get in business. So we are very lucky that here in San Francisco on Harrison Street, there is um, one of the importers for the West Coast of all the pasta machinery, Emilio Miti Pasta Bees. And it's actually a friend of, of um, Angelo. So connection was made and we bought a pasta machine that you'll see later um, uh, it's a Dominioni P55 from a restaurant in Santa Cruz it was a decently priced piece of equipment uh, big machine uh, we put it in the laundry room of Renato's house back back in the days it used to live a couple of blocks from here in Jack London Square and we started making pasta 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 one little detail that was interesting is the flowers. So we literally shape flour. We, we're, not, we're not cooking anything. So we need to buy the best flour we could. And so the, um, the sourcing and the procuring and you know, securing those channels of, of, of wheat was um, mandatory. You, you, cannot, um, you cannot operate a business without having quality on a steady, on a steady state. We tried many different flowers. Back in the days, the um, flower business was mostly developed for um, bakers. And so granularity is a big deal for us. Uh, there were stone ground flowers back in the days, but, you know, they weren't good for making pasta. In, in one instance, we actually got some grit into the flour, um, like you don't wash your veggies properly or your cleanse properly. Um, it's basically a result of the stone milling. So we definitely need 
to rely on someone who has rotative milling and everything. Eventually, we settled with um, Nikki Justo, Central Milling, who does an amazing job. He sources mostly from Utah and Montana and Washington State. And so we started with uh, Durum wheat, which is the classic wheat for pasta, uh, what in America is widely known as Samolina. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, Samolina is the way it's ground, but um, other than that. And then whole wheat, which is the whole grain version of durum wheat, and then spelt and whole spelt. We really wanted farro, which is emmer, uh, the original stuff that Romans used to eat, but back in the days it wasn't that good. We found some in Washington State, but it was not, it was super pricey. So yeah, basically those are the flowers we started with. Pretty much ran a pirate operation in Renato's laundry room for a year. And it was fantastic. Give us such a rewarding feel of making good food and Renato was the president of Slow Food International um, he basically preached good clean and fair food for who makes it and who eats it uh, those are the principles of slow food and for me it was just really a matter of making making stuff I love making stuff so we started providing pasta to restaurants underground uh, completely under the table uh, Rockridge first a restaurant named Toast so I think it's still there and Enoteca Molinari those were the two and then Byright picked us up uh, Sam Moganem was a phenomenal fan of what we were doing so we pretty much glided one year not really thinking business but starting smelling the potential and eventually we found this place in Jack London Square used to be an ex-edible arrangements and we moved in um, Jack London Square was trying to develop an artisanal scene and we perfectly fit the bill and they gave us a little bit of a break on um, on rent and it was great uh, Renato brought a business plan that was very well written and very sustainable and not so harsh Pasta was born I would say that instrumental to our business was also the collaboration with a design studio named Zipfly Alex and Becca Ashton they made our packaging and five years later, I see that packaging as almost iconic. You see it on the shelf, and it's so colorful, so geometric, so different. It just screams California for some reason. San Francisco also. Um, it kind of looks like a peace flag, which wasn't the intention, but if you choose different colors in the end, you're going to find you're gonna find yourself with a peace flag. So it's perfect. It, it was perfect. So Biopasta was born, and now we've been expanding and expanding the flowers, expanding the cut. We bought new machinery. We have employees. We're a real business. We're, it, it's growing. It's growing. That's amazing. So you mentioned a lot of different kinds of flour mm-hmm. and a lot of different kinds of pasta. Mm-hmm. How would you describe the different flavors of the different kinds of pasta? So the... Um, there's a law in Italy that says that nothing less than 60 or 65 percent, I forgot the number, uh, durum wheat semolina can be called pasta. And so... Um, what do you mean by that? It means that the customers need, need to get the real deal. You know what I mean? They, they, pasta cannot be made with soft wheat. It has to be made with hard wheat, durum wheat. And so there's, there's a law for that. Uh, there's no such rule in the U.S., but we, st- we stick to it. Like, because our pasta is basically um, it's made in old traditional Italian style. There, may, they might have changed the rules right now, but uh, we know that there's a lot. Wow. Um, so we definitely started with semolina, and we were lucky because Nikki Giusto sources um, uh, hard wheat from Utah and Montana. Actually, the same stuff that goes to Italy, if not better, because it stays here. And it's organic. If you see pictures of Montana, you see how beautiful that land is. 
and the wheat is just phenomenal. Um, in fact, we're kind of lucky we get the seasonality too. So in terms of flavor, our durum wheat semolina, which is around, the numbers are not completely right, but just to make you understand, is around 30% refined. So it's, let's call it 70, okay? It has a very intense bread and popcorn flavor. Even when you boil it, uh, you have a pleasant smell out of the water. I'll go a little bit deeper in the techniques later, but uh, it, it's also because it has a nice texture. So when you bite into our pastas, you really have a pleasant wheat flavor. Um, that, that has to do with the shape as well, but again, we go into it later. Uh, when you go to the whole grain version of it, you start adding all those fibers and, and brambly, grassy flavors, okay? Uh, one issue that we had at the beginning when we were using 100% whole grain is that the texture was a little bit off. And um, it's pretty much what it is. If you use whole grain flour, there's a lot of fiber, and those are not digestible, so they don't hydrate very well. Um, so we ended up with a product that was, to us, really good, but somehow bitter. And people started complaining, and in fact, was the least seller. So we basically used as what is called an 85, so let's say 15% refined flour. That gives us all the flavor and the nutrition of whole grain without a bad texture and really taming that bitterness. So our wheat right now is just money, seriously. It is delicious. And we decided uh, last year to price it uh, at the same price of uh, regular. So if you're questioning if you go whole grain or not, price is the same. So it's on you. And then spelt, as I said, originally wanted farro, but it wasn't as flavorful as spelt. Originally used for baking, but, you know, spelt pasta came out fabulously nutty, earthy, wholesome, and nutritionally speaking, it also has a lot of uh, good fats, protein, iron, microelements, zinc, manganese, selenium, name it. People refer as spelt as gluten-less. Um, yeah, I don't think it's true. In fact, it has a higher content of protein. I think uh, it's just less refined and hasn't been hybridized as much as the modern wheats. So it forms basically a not as tight gluten, and so you digest it a little bit better. Um, we have the classic spelt in orange and then the whole spelt in dark red. Uh, whole spelt, of course, as the durum wheat has a lot of fibers and, 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 and the grassy flavors and whole. So it's actually the boldest cut flavor we have on the shelf. And then pretty much one year after, we wanted to expand to heirloom grains. And the best we could think of was Kamut. So Kamut is a patented version of Khorasan wheat. Khorasan is a grain that originated in an area of Iran named Khorasan. And the legend, that if you go on Wikipedia, says they found the grain in an Egyptian tomb and they brought it back to terra cultivation, which is magic somehow. I want to believe that. Kamut has basically been patented by a guy in Montana named Bob Quinn, so no one can tamper with it. Uh, it is actually one of the few uh, good patents that I know. No one can mix anything with it. It has to be grown organically. I believe they do some genetic testing on fields, which quite no one does, especially in the corn business. It has such an earnest list of nutritional facts. Low glycemic index, which is good for diabetics, high digestibility, protein, microelements, good fats, name it. I mean, if you go on their website, they'll entertain you with all this stuff. So we bought it, and it was hands down delicious. 
um, it's it's an heirloom variety of durum wheat and it's a tall wheat the production rate is not as large as regular durum and that's why it potentially hasn't been grown uh, commercially for a long time but it's delicious and it has a very honey buttery tone on top of the bready popcorny flavor of durum so yeah it's it's actually my favorite flower right now This is Rebecca Goberstein, and you're listening to Menu Stories, a podcast where we get to know the stories about the people and restaurants behind the food we love. We'll be right back with Dario Barbone and Renato Sardo of Baia Pasta. history a little bit more in Renato's. Yeah. Um, so how did how did you two meet? So we met at my house now that back then was not my house. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. I, I used to live and I still live on Potrero Hill in San Francisco and Renato was hired by my neighbor on the third floor at a company named Vinfolio because uh, Renato has an extensive background in wine as well. Um, and this guy basically threw a Christmas party and uh, we both attended. I just walked the stairs and Renato came in and we were the t- only two Italians and, <laughs> and we started chatting. And instant groove, you know, uh, instant friends. And he was still very, very involved in um, slow food at the time. So we did a lot of slow food together, uh, slow food Alameda, slow food Berkeley, um, Golden Glass and many events. And um, eventually the guy that, hosted that party moved to texas and i moved from the first floor to the third floor so now i live in that house how funny um but yeah we've been friends pretty much from 2005 and we both have been in the u.s for 10 years wow so where in italy are you from and what made you what made you come over to the u.s from italy so we're both from piemonte uh, a region northwest of Italy. Um, if you know Bar- Barolo Barbaresco, Renato is from that area. I'm more from the plains where we uh, grow rice and uh, wine. Pretty much our uh, culture comes from that region in Italy. And I came to U.S. to finish my PhD in molecular medicine. I stayed in academia pretty much as far... Uh, actually, I'm going to quit in July 1st. <laughs> so that's, um, that's my deadline. And um, wait, this July 1st? This July 1st, yeah. I, des- I decided to move on from science to, to food. I've been an assistant researcher at UCSF uh, for 10 years. Hi. <laughs> Finally. Is this Renato? <laughs> yes, Renato, okay. yes. So, Renato, it's lovely to have you come. I know you were sick, so um, we appreciate you <laughs> joining us. What a nice surprise. He's a trooper. <laughs> So Dario was just sharing how you two met at a holiday party. So Dario mentioned that he is officially transitioning July 1st from academia. You currently teach at, at UCSF. Right. right. I've been in, uh, I would say, tenure track for, t- for 10 years. And um, I go to a point where the love of food is prevailing. So my avocation is calling. And uh, actually, um, this has become a serious business and so i cannot pretend that i can just be in and out and you know doing just weekends we discussed that and it has to be i mean founder and co-founder here talking to you and they need to be both here at the same time yeah and uh so i'll make the big switch 
year of change, 2016, year of the monkey. <laughs> well, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, Renato, what about, what about you? What, um, what made you move from mm, Italy to the well, US? Well, I, I was at the time when I moved here, it was at the same time of Dario, so it was 10 years ago, 11 years ago now. Right. And uh, I was still working at Slow Food full time. I was executive director. And uh, I, I married an American uh, woman that was working at Slow Food at the time, who's now making a career in the food world. And uh, we decided to move. I, I was, it, it was 10 years basically that I was doing Slow Food and I thought that it was time to, to change. Uh, so I moved uh, after the marriage. Uh, I stayed one year more in Slow Food and then I, I moved to US to without any real plan. Like the the I thought that frankly was it would have been easier to find a job in the NGO world here, but it was not <coughs> very easy. Probably would have been easier in the East Coast. There are more international NGO that collaborates with Europe. So like it was a little bit more difficult than I thought to find that. And so like the the plan B was to help slow food put in roots here. And then uh, during the first two three years, I did several little jobs mostly related to Italian wine uh, and I'm uh, and, and I did also some job like uh, you know working in a specialty food store in a wine specialty in a wine merchant and that's where I met Dario basically I always wanted to to try you know to live somewhere else uh, uh, there's no food experience was great I thought that when I left was kind of the peak of the international development of the association. Then that many things has happened since, like the food has done several other things, but nothing really out of Italy, I mean, to be honest. And so I knew that where Slow Food was going, that was kind of the peak. I built this international movement and I thought it was a good moment to leave. Mm -hmm. And so I came here without any plan, but always with the idea that you know if i couldn't find a clear career uh, a possibility would have been to switch from slow food theory to practice because in california particularly there are many people who does slow food theory well like you know paul and many organizations there are many who know like who theorizes about sustainable food movement about their but there aren't many who actually produce slow mm -hmm. food things, products, compared to Italy, where the density is higher. And then uh, four years ago, five years ago, they worked at, it was the right time to try. Yeah. And so I always wanted to try to do a pasta company because I thought it was interesting that there was nobody really doing dry pasta and most of the wheat comes from here. Because pasta is obviously so rooted in, in Italy and mm -hmm. Italian cuisine and yeah. um, it makes a lot of sense in California because there's always a lot of comparisons to the food style and the mm -hmm. climate here to, mm -hmm. to Italy. But have you both always had a fascination with food? Kind of, what are some of your first memories of food <laughs> when no, you were no, children? For, for me, like my family was intrinsically uh, connected with food. Uh, like my father was a food wholesaler. In reality, his uh, like soul was a food journalist. So he always started to write about food. He was one of the founders of, and he still works for Slow Food as the chairman of the foundation. So, but at the beginning, he was basically selling high-quality cheeses and salami to restaurants in Piemonte. And so, one of the first memories I have are of the amazing number of white truffle that he could get with barter, like barter in milk and cheese with some of the truffles. So we had 
particularly rainy winters where there is the wine is not very good but there are a lot of truffles one of my first memories was this to this like uh, to have this fonduta which is our sort of raclette uh, uh, with a ton of white truffles wow. which was at not the time shabby. not decadent yeah. <laughs> but it was great yeah can you imagine um, him five years old in truffles <laughs> and then i remember like obelix you know all <laughs> the cheese is the pasta the, the ravioli like we had a grandmother which is an amazing chef so i remember all the dinners in the um, in, in my uh, my grandmother uh, farmhouse really right. in monferrato uh, so like what i remember like killing the, the chicken you know the whole uh, process from like <coughs> really from farm to table yeah. <laughs> for real not for when styrofoam know. trays were not e- no, didn't yeah. exist yet yeah um for me i come from a family mostly from the south and a very heavy cooking uh family so i grew by the lap of my grandmas and mom and um my aunt and uncle had a um little orchard and with a, with a li- actually kind of a little vegetable garden as well and yeah i remember spending my my summers over there and growing stuff and picking it up in the morning and pruning and planting and water i mean there was an entire dedication to what food is um, I never really went to the store and bought it. I either picked it or, n- in a way, deserved it, mm-hmm. uh, worked for it. Uh, myself became very interested in cooking at pretty very early age. I think my first chicken cutlet was at five years old. That you made yourself. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, and the prosciutto mousse, if I remember. That was my lunch or something. I, yeah. Uh, I believe U.S., but kind of worldwide, food is being removed from culture. So you see a lot of people here not really connected to a specific culture and actually a specific relationship with food. Eating at the table, cooking for people, visiting your farmer's market, getting what's in season, supporting your local farmer. All of that, it's very big in California. I don't think it's true for U.S. generally. Uh, And I believe with the last wave of people, um, last wave of um, philosophical change in San Francisco, all these deliveries and 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 services of shared economy, there's 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 a little bit of detachment that is being sponsored. I think that's that's a problem. That's a problem because I understand time is time. I understand struggle is struggle when you're trying to um, make make your month. But food, I- food, we are what we eat, and you cannot forget that. Um, and you cannot forget that is a so there's a social aspect to to food, other than mere energy. So when I see people that train for all this and they drink gels and stuff like that, it's a pure almost quantum physics uh, vision of food, which is very dry. And that's what Renato was saying. If, you re- if, you d- if, you don't, if you're not hedonistic in a way that you love, enjoy, and not just for the money, not just for the truffle, not just for the gold leaf on, on a dish or the perfect plating. I would say if you, if you support who, who makes your food, if you love who cooks for you, and if you build a microcosmos of people that are passionate and in love with what you do, that's what you can do to change uh, how people eat. Just just feed them. Yeah, then in, the cu- in those cultures, there is a lot of experimentation, a lot of testing that has been passed from generation to generation. So many of these techniques, many of the way we consume food, then now we are discovering bring more health. 
you know it, 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 so like the idea that you can something as complex as uh, a diet has an enormous variety of different aspects your personal biology the the food aspect the way you eat with which other food uh, in which way uh, I mean that's an extremely complicated if you try to reduce it just to gluten yes no uh, fat yes no uh, I mean you you basically do a disservice to yourselves mm -hmm. uh, I like that and uh, and so like for us the major obstacle in making the pasta mostly for retailers is to see how little people cooks and now that we will have more time to develop different tools one of the ideas to have a website which really like teaches how to cook the red pasta simply because the red pasta in our experience is really the tool that enables you to eat at home rapidly healthily economically even if you buy our pasta which is organic i mean in the end it's like a dollar dollar a portion a portion you know and so like if in italy fast food has been less successful than in other western countries because basically all the italian students know how to make some pasta salad <laughs> uh, and that's the lunch you yep. know yeah and uh, and so like seeing how much people is disconnected even with cooking a, a plate of pasta is uh, disconcerting surprised yeah uh, it's surprising like, uh, for us, when we do demo in supermarkets, I've always been surprised by how many people say, I would like to buy, not the box of pasta, like the, the pasta and the sauce. To, you know, like... Like they don't even understand how to put it together. But no, but, and, and it's not that I am... Dario is more refined than me as a chef. I am a very good eater, very... <laughs> but I'm not a great chef. I've never been... But, like, you know, like, if I can do it in 40 minutes for... 200 people i mean you can do it for sure you know and this fact that um yeah there is this uh, wow you like can do in 40 minutes for 200 people that's impressive I used to do <laughs> to cook a romesco yeah 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 i'm just joking just uh, joking you know like uh, so it's it's uh, it's not uh, it's it's also a way to live better otherwise you are at the mercy of uh, marketing marketing of munchery with the, uh, you know uh, restaurants take out deliveries and and probiotic pills that because you kind of feel guilty and then so you try to adapt and doing this protein yeah. shakes this horrible stuff. and let's and let's separate <laughs> who's as serious concern about health i mean uh, if, if you're celiac if you have serious health concerns course, uh, high cholesterol you name it you you might have some dietary restriction and you're absolutely entitled to but as a general statement it's true there's a little bit less passion for the food and there's more passion for the restaurant for the idea for the concept for the plating for the hype the design uh, the design and the and, service. and don't get me wrong that's great because if that's the way that food has to get in people houses fabulous as long as value of food is maintained and very well clear I think we step into that. We have both. We have a very iconic design packaging, uh, but inside there is like pasta that comes from a farmer and is being shaped and made here by us artisanally. And and then you bring it home and it's a box of pasta that stays in your cupboard and people come for dinner. What well, we should have? Buy a pasta. Boom. Yep. Dinner for five. And because you service both restaurants and at yep. home cooking, mm -hmm. right? So you kind of sit at a point where you can see both sides. So um, we don't have too much time left, but I do want to get a sense of the shape of the pasta and, and why 
why you've selected the types of pasta that you have selected to mm -hmm. produce? Yeah, I can start and then Dario can finish. Like sure. the, <laughs> the first general choice was basically because we didn't have a lot of capital, we couldn't do long noodles. And so long noodles require a way more uh, sophisticated in terms of equipment products. There are ways you can do long noodles if you cut by hand, but it, it's not economically feasible. If you talk about dry pasta. So like that was the first big uh, constraint choice. So we had to focus on uh, uh, short shapes of pasta, pasta corta, macaron. And then it was a mix. We tried to have some classics and some stuff that very few in the U.S. had. For example, there were certain shapes like the pakeri, which nobody in the U.S. makes, which for me are one of the best pasta shapes of yeah. Italy. <coughs> which and is this one? The pakeri, which are the long, the, the, the tubes. Uh, Big tubes. Um, typical of Naples. And so we, we wanted to have, like, uh, you know, the first real pakeri made in the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we are still looking for the shapes that can characterize us if there will be ever one for the moment i think we're mostly known for the varieties of shapes right so as i we i think with the shapes that we added we now have orzo radiatori and um, elbow max for mac and cheese we have 15 cuts which is a lot if you think that we have five flowers now and we're going to introduce amber soon what Renato said is absolutely on point when it comes to shape though it's also functional to what kind of food sauce you're cooking it with and what kind of sort of mouthfeel that you want to have from that pasta. Large cuts are normally good for pasta dishes that have discrete ingredients. So let's say you have a shrimp pasta. You kind of want a noodle that will stand out and you want something small. That would be a disproportionate dish if you think about it. But if you have a ground sauce like a ragu with meat, uh, you know, the little sardinias, which are little tiny shells, would be just perfect. Um, so visually, that's one thing, uh, the, s the shape of the pasta and how many crevices and hollow surfaces, you know, you, you have to hold up that sauce. And then also rule of thumb, the more design, the thinner the pasta, because you cannot really make a thick pasta with a lot of design. It would be like a chunky, you know, it was too messy. So our simpler pasta like pakeri or coarse crews, which are not super designy, are very thick so when you have a bite of those you have a phenomenal mouthfeel and actually that flavor of wheat comes through very nice for thinner pasta they, they serve another purpose and so it depends that how much of that wheat flavor you want to come through with every bite and roughly visually how you want your plate to look and i believe we have the best choice around i, I haven't seen that much choice yeah we in terms of if you come to we the miss store spaghetti. I miss right, the spaghetti. right 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 <laughs> He's romantic, he wants spaghetti so much. <laughs> no, then there is also a regional component. There are three, four cuts that are strongly regional based mm. and they evolved because of what they had in that region. Right. And so they are the perfect vehicle for a certain plate. Like the orecchiette, I don't even know why, but in Puglia, uh, Southern Italy, they started to do the orecchiette to go with little broccoli and sausage. Broccoli and they're the tiny little Yeah, yeah, they are the little right? ears. They look like little <laughs> nachos. We call yeah. them nachos. That plate, uh, or the little twins we have, the, the slightly. Gemelli. They are the trophy in Genova. They are the perfect vehicle for the pesto. So right. they. There are certain, so at that point you recommend that with the pesto simply because that's the way it's done in uh, Genova. And so, so there are certainly, or the, the sardine, the gnocchetti are, was the pasta that in Sardinia uh, was evolved to uh, and 
enhance the flavor of the lamb ragu ground meat. meats in general yeah. yeah and so there are certainly like uh, there are five or six that are strongly geographical yeah and so they developed with recipes that now we recommend do you label the boxes with recommended type of sauce or do mm. you kind of explain that on your website or we discussed that and we decided not to do it because we didn't want to really tell people what to do with our pasta it, it's it's an american pasta and so we didn't want to have I, if you open the box the yellow box it says 100 percent american except for the italians who make it <laughs> so we didn't want to really put that italian label on it cook yeah. it this way if we this way as I said, support your farmer's market, get the best food you can, cook it, toss it with pasta, you're good to go, whatever you are. Mm -hmm. Just don't put ketchup. <laughs> 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 so uh, you guys have both come a long way over the last almost five years with Biopasta. What's been the most rewarding thing? For me is to connect with the food tribe here, one. Being, coming from the world of science, I was connected with the food tribe, but literally, there's a there's an army of people that run and law and and lives with a passion for food and so having built that network that connection is potentially the best thing that happened to me in the united states other than of course having become a, a man and independent through science and everything but um and that, that specifically there's a reward for me in making pasta i literally make something that sometimes I see kids in the store and they're eating what we do. And um, we're literally becoming part of that kid's bones and muscles and brain and, and culture. So that's to me the most rewarding part. No, for me, yeah, the, the, the most rewarding part is, I also enjoy a lot doing pasta still once a week. I don't know, I find it very healthy exercise, physical and also vegetational. But I, I enjoy a lot the fact that, that whatever we do then ends up being eaten by other i think that's rewarding i also find rewarding building new things like creating a new company from zero i think i like a lot the journey and that's why i i i never stop i always think what could be the journey uh, and i try to do that without being too concerned about the business plan and I think there is something rewarding in that. It's it's difficult because then you're on a trench. But it's uh, yeah, creating something from zero is for me is very rewarding and, and slowly seeing it grow. Yeah, didn't exist and now it's on a shelf near you. Love that. So, um, well, thank you both so much for taking time thank today. You, it was a pleasure so meeting you. Appreciate and that. Hi, Minus Stories people. <laughs> A dollar a plate for home-cooked organic pasta doesn't sound so bad when you put it like that. You can find Buy a Pasta at their shop in Jack London Square, on the shelf at Whole Foods and local grocery stores, or you can visit their website, buyapasta.com, to order online. On the next episode of Menu Stories, we return to San Francisco and get to know a series of soul food and southern-style chefs across Hayes Valley and the Fillmore District. Subscribe to Menu Stories on MenuStories.com so you can get the next episode delivered to your inbox. You can listen on our website, iTunes, and SoundCloud, and be sure to find us on Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. Special thanks to Siska Marcus, Menu Stories assistant editor and producer, and Patrick Wong, our videographer. I'm your host, Rebecca Goberstein, and until next time, happy eating.